I briefly mentioned um, our small groups. And if you had not had an opportunity to visit our small group, but you would still like to come, you can jump in at any time because we're just going through the 23rd Psalm. And we have a book that we're going through, and it's called A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And it's interesting because his perspective, right, as a shepherd, he knows all about sheep. And one thing that's been interesting is to see how much we are like sheep. (laughs) There's a reason why we're called sheep. And he just takes a little bit at a time, verse by verse, uh, to look at it and then break it out and talk about what that means to a shepherd. And this last week we talked about, he leads me beside still waters. And sheep are very skittish creatures. And so leading them beside still waters is very important. And he said there are three ways that sheep can get water. And the first is from just the dew on the ground when they get up and they start munching on grass. And then the second is in wells. Wells are a little bit better, obviously. They can get more uh, that way, but it's still kind of stagnant. And the best way, he said, is to go by, um, you know, creeks or rivers. He leads me beside still waters. And he said, that is the best because the water's moving, tends to be a little bit cleaner. And we talked about, you know, when Jesus would say a couple times, he said, you know, if somebody drinks of the water that I give him, he will have bubbling up within him streams of living water. And, you know, when I thought about that, I've always thought about, about how refreshing, how refreshing that is to me because I have, you know, living water bubbling up inside of me. But it's not just supposed to stay there for you. It's supposed to flow out of you. And we watched that video last week where I saw the water running out of the temple, right? And everywhere that it ran, everything that it touched became pure and it became full of life. And that's what we were talking about last week was how um, this holiness, this central theme of holiness that runs throughout the entire Bible, um, the point of that is to make us like him, that we need to be those that are pure in heart. Every spiritual truth touches on this theme of holiness and being pure in heart and the Christian's desire to recapture what we've lost. We've lost that purity in our life. And Jesus is making this progression through the Beatitudes, and from holiness, it naturally follows that he talks about peace, or more accurately, being peacemakers, those that make peace. And not coincidentally, we lost both of these things. We lost purity, and we lost peace in the Garden of Eden when we fell. In the garden, God created everything holy. Everything was pure. Um, We talked about Holiness as being set apart, being divinely different. But when God created all of that in the garden, it was all holy. Uh, It was all pure. There was no distinction. But that's what we were made for. We were made for pure and holy relationship with the Father. But once the devil launched his assault on God and the war started here on earth when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, both of those things, both purity and peace, were taken away from us. Now mankind is in um, a battle. We're engaged in a battle for sovereignty. Who is going to be sovereign? Are we going to be sovereign over our lives? Are we going to call the shots? Or are we going to be submitted to God? Are we going to be submitted to the Father? Let him call the shots and follow his instructions. That is the question that we have. And I thought I would just kind of read through uh, Genesis 3 here of what God said after our peace after this purity was taken away. And it's in Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts in the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in share in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So, Jesus, when he starts off the Beatitudes, this king speech, he starts off talking about blessings. And he's talking about blessings because we are very much under a curse. Once we fell under the curse and sin um, drove man out of the garden, we were um, out of the garden, we were out of his presence, we were away from the tree of life. Purity was gone, his presence was gone. And the supernatural everlasting life that they had to begin with was now gone. And as a result, there was no more peace, no more peace in their lives, no more peace in the world. And if you think about it, a culture that had lost these things, first of all, they'd probably be obsessed with cleanliness. Probably be obsessed with cleanliness because that purity is gone. You ever just feel dirty? Um, and no matter how much you scrub, no matter how much you try to get clean, you still don't have that feeling of being clean. Jeff and I were talking before we got here. Um, you know, <laughs> I've been to Guatemala to visit my parents, and it is so hot there. And you take a shower because you just feel disgusting. But as soon as you step out of the shower, you start to sweat. And you feel disgusting again. It's weird. We long for that feeling of cleanliness. Um, I played baseball growing up, and... See, the only way that people knew that you were in the game, that you had played the game, is if you got dirty. Then everybody knew that you got in the game. So I did my best to make sure, I took every opportunity to make sure that I got dirty. Uh, Much to my mother's chagrin, who had to wash all of my stuff over the years. Um, But on several occasions, what would happen is we'd come home from a game, and I would have to actually, you know, take my uniform off before I could get in the house, dump all of the dirt off on the patio, and then tiptoe my way into the house. When I came out of the shower several times, my mom would take a look at the towel, and she'd be like, eh, back in the shower, man, because this towel's filthy. You thought you were clean, but you weren't. And no matter how much we try to clean ourselves up, we still have this feeling of sinfulness, of not being clean. My girls love to go to Bath and Body Works, and I go like twice a year, (laughs) Christmas and birthdays. But it's amazing how much stuff they fit in that place. I was reading this week that just the bath soap industry is going to be by $24 billion this year just for bath soap. We have an obsession with wanting to be clean, wanting to be pure. And a culture that had lost these things would also be very obsessed, very into spiritual things. And I think you could say safely that our culture, our world is very much into spiritual things. Uh, I was reading an article um, that Barnes and Noble, between 2020 and 2021, the size of their self-transformation section doubled. It doubled. Now, we've always had diet books, so that didn't come from more diet books. came from mostly spiritual content. People are looking for more spirituality. 
And these people would also be trying to extend their lives as long as possible, wouldn't they? Um, I read an article in the Scientific American that happened last year, and they were saying that they believed that there was a way that human beings could live to be 150 years old. And so we have this desire to extend life because this might be all that there is. And even Jeff Bezos, the guy who is, you know, that started Amazon, super, you know, billionaire, has invested heavily in a lab whose express purpose is to try to figure out how to prolong human life as long as possible. We're obsessed, not just with trying to get pure again, not just with trying to get in touch with our, you know, with God spiritually, but also how to extend our lives on this earth, because all that's been taken away. See, gang, the devil knows exactly what we lost in the garden. He knows exactly what we lost, and he's doing his best. His, his most effective tactic is to offer substitutions, to offer substitute, cheap substitutes for what we've lost. These desires that are inside of us have been placed there by God. They're not bad desires, but they're misdirected, and Satan throws everything he can at us to try to get us to settle for a substitution, something that will take his place. Interestingly enough, there actually is one substitution and only one, and that's the substitute of Jesus, who was the substitute for our sins, took our place. That's the reason why only he can satisfy those desires inside of our heart. People look for all kinds of things to try to fill the void that only Jesus can fill. So, After last week's verse, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now we have blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The days that we live in are in desperate need of peace, obviously. It is playing out right before our eyes over in Ukraine. Uh, It's front and center because it's impossible to ignore. Uh, But our existence here on earth has always been characterized by conflict, by war, Um, one writer penned that peace is that glorious time in history where everybody stops to reload. That's what peace is, where everybody stops just to reload. It's estimated that in the last 3,400 years of recorded history, the world in its entirety has only been at peace less than 8% of that time. Less than 8% of that time has been qualified as there being no conflict, no wars on earth. So we had problems with this and we founded the UN, right? In 1945, the United Nations was formed and its express purpose was to keep international peace and security. Now, ironically, there hasn't been either since they started. There hasn't been peace or security since 1945 when we founded the UN. Even our country's been engaged in a conflict, in a battle, in a war, somewhere in the world, whether it's here in the homeland or overseas, for over 220 years of our 250-year existence. We've been engaged in conflict of some kind. Somebody once said, peace, oh, we love peace. We build a monument to peace after every war. We have lots of monuments in our country and across the world. There was a Swedish chemist named Alfred. And Alfred had become famous for his inventions and his development of things that included explosives. And he had developed over 350 patents for his ideas and um, all of his contraptions that had to do with um, explosives. And one day in 1867, he invented dynamite. 
And that completely changed the trajectory of both construction and warfare. And it's interesting because both of those, the idea is there has to be destruction for progress. If there's going to be progress, there's got to be some destruction too. And not coincidentally, in our world today, people are doing their best, governments, people, organizations, to destroy our society, our governments, our financial system, all of that, so that they can be progressive and rebuild on that. That's what's happening in our day. But he became so famous, so skilled at this, that by the time he wrote his will, uh, he had developed and run over a hundred factories that were pumping out ammunitions and all kinds of explosives, dynamite, across the globe. But something happened that changed his life radically. In 1888, his brother, Ludwig, died in France. And thanks to some very poor reporting, a newspaper in France had reported that it was actually Alfred that had died. See, he was the one that everybody knew. He was the famous one. And so they proceeded to write a scathing obituary on Alfred, calling him the merchant of death, a guy that had become famous, had become rich, developing new ways to destroy people and to destroy things. So they called him the merchant of death. And so you can imagine his surprise when he woke up one morning, picked up the newspaper, and read his own obituary. Very unsettling. And so when that happened, he had a crisis of consciousness that led him to reevaluate his life. And so what he did is he decided he was going to rewrite his will. He became obsessed with how he was going to be seen, his legacy, after he died. So he rewrote his will, and he said he was going to donate his entire fortune to a new philanthropic effort that bestowed upon people that had you know, accomplished great humanitarian efforts. They were going to get the Alfred Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Peace Prize. This guy whose name was connected so synonymous with destruction and warfare changed his legacy. He faced his own death. He saw his legacy, what people were going to remember him for. It changed him radically, and now his name is connected to peace. And he's celebrated people who are peacemakers. We place a high value on peace, although we never really experience it, not very often. We don't have um, societal peace. We don't have religious peace. We don't have racial or family or personal peace. These are things that are very hard to find. Um, we don't have peace because of the opposition of Satan and the disobedience of man. Those two things, disobedience, which is sin, or as Billy Graham would say, missing the mark. If you were here and saw that video, missing the mark and missing the mark. Sin is putting ourselves first. And when we put ourselves first, peace comes last. Peace comes last when we come first. I mentioned last week that there are over 600 references to holiness in the scriptures. There are roughly 400 direct references to peace in the Bible. So it is also a dominant theme throughout the scriptures. Holiness and peace are very closely related. Um, one of the names of God is Jehovah Shalom, which means God our peace. And the Jewish people use this word Shalom when they greet each other. They greet each other and they say Shalom, which means peace or literally God's highest good to you. God's highest good to you. You know, we say hello or hi, it doesn't really mean anything. But imagine if, you know, you ran into somebody who you didn't really care for. That would make you think twice about either 
proclaiming peace over them (laughs) or your attitude towards them to say shalom, to proclaim peace and God's goodness over them, you would have to check your heart before you said that to somebody else and really mean it. It carried some weight. Fortunately, God's peace has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with armies or truces or treaties. A lot of our peace is centered on the fear of force, right? Or avoiding certain issues or hiding the truth. That's what a lot of our peace is built on, but that's not what God does. And his children are to exhibit the same characteristics that to solve problems between people, we need to be those that are bridge builders. You could say that peacemakers are bridge builders. They're ones that connect or make a way between two problems to help them heal that hurt. But making, pay, making peace is messy. It's messy. Peacemaking sounds good, but what it actually does, it, it invites struggle and pain, and hardship, and anguish. That's what peacemaking, those are the prices for making peace and healing. There was a man in the Old Testament, um, and his name meant heel snatcher. His name meant one who seizes, literally. And he got that name because he was a twin. He had a twin brother, and he was the younger one. When his older brother was being born, he was being brought out, and he was holding on to his ankle. Imagine that. That would be crazy. He's holding on to his ankle. And he lived up to that name, one who seizes or heel snatcher, because as they grew up, he would try to take away that which was his older brother's. The man's name was Jacob. Jacob. And his brother's name was Esau. And you remember the story. Jacob was kind of a mama's boy. Uh, He liked to hang out around the tents, and he liked to help out in the kitchen. Esau, Esau was what we would call a man's man. Uh, His name means hairy. That's what Esau means, hairy. Can you imagine you bring this baby out and you're like, man, that kid's hairy. (laughs) Let's name him Harry. Okay. Jacob, that means one who steals. Let's, Let's try to, yeah, he's trying to steal his brother there, trying to be first. We'll name him that. He was more of an outdoorsman, more of a hunter. And one day Esau came back from a hunting trip that didn't go very well. And uh, Alicia's familiar with that. (laughs) Lots of times I've come back from a hunting trip with nothing and famished. And he'd eat something. But he came back from his trip. He was very hungry. And as he got home, he noticed his brother Jacob in the kitchen cooking up some stew. And he tells his brother, he's like, Jacob, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says something that's very much like a brother. He's like, give you some. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll trade you for your birthright. Now, I don't know if he was kidding or if he was serious, but Esau was so foolish and so willing, so, in, so eager to fill his, his face, his flesh, that he said, sure, what good is a birthright if I'm not around to see it? He's being a little dramatic, I think, if he had just waited. But he threw away his birthright. Now, a birthright wasn't something to throw away lightly. Just by virtue of being born first, you got a double portion of the inheritance. A double portion. Remember that. Double portion, double portion of it. But you also became kind of the de facto leader of the family once the father had passed on. So not only did you get a double portion, you were also the spiritual head of the family. Um, so my sister says not so fast. That's what she's saying. <laughs> so this wasn't something that should have been thrown away lightly. Um, not only was there um, a birthright, but there was also a blessing 
It was twofold. There was a special blessing that only the oldest got, and that was significant. He had given away all of his worldly wealth that he was going to be getting, but he was holding on to the blessing. That was a big deal. So his father Isaac had gotten very old, and he had lost his eyesight, and he knows that his days are short. And so he tells Esau, he calls him in, and he says, listen, I want you to go out and go hunting. You know I like the wild game. Esau was his favorite. He says, go out and bring me back venison deer steaks. That's my favorite. (laughs) Go get that, bring it back, prepare it, and I'm going to bless you before I die. And so Esau grabs his bow, heads out, And while he's gone, their mom helps Jacob steal the blessing. He'd already stolen the birthright. She said, I got a plan. We're going to make a plan so you can actually steal the blessing too. Not great. So what she does is she goes, I'm going to prepare. He's going to think it's his favorite meal. I actually do all the cooking around here. So it's going to seem like his favorite meal. And what we're going to do is we're going to put Esau's clothes on you so you'll smell like him. You know, if you've ever been out in the woods or you've been outdoors for a long period of time, there's a very distinctive smell of the outdoors once you come back in. That's what he smelled like. And he says, listen, this isn't going to work. I mean, Esau, he's like a woolly mammoth. He's got hair everywhere. And I use, you know, oil of Olay. You know, I'm, I'm smooth-skinned here. I'm different than him. And she says, don't worry about it. And she takes some ram skin and she, some goat skin and she puts it like on his arms and on the back of his neck to deceive their father. So she has the meal. And she has the skin on his arms, and she's got the clothes. And so he comes in, and he says, you know, Dad, here I am. I'm Esau. And he's like, you don't sound like Esau. Like, you actually sound, or you, you know, you sound like Jacob. He's like, no, no, it's, it's me, Esau. And he has his doubts, but in the end, he ends up blessing Jacob. And he comes out, and his mom's all happy. She's like, we did it. Actually, you better split. <laughs> because when Esau gets here, he's going to kill you. Thanks, Mom. That's crazy. She helped him steal the blessing, then he has to split because Esau is going to kill him. Now, we may not think this is a very big deal, that when Esau comes back and Isaac figures out that he's been tricked, he could just bless Esau like it was a mistake. But that's not the way it worked. There was one blessing that was given, and Jacob got it. And it says that when Esau got back, he sought the blessing with tears. He was weeping Not over the birthright, but over the blessing. That's what he wanted from his father. And because he didn't get that, it did not go well for Esau. And at that point, he did want to kill his brother. But he had gone away. Listen, you might have some drama in your family right now. But it probably doesn't include one of the kids wanting to do in one of their siblings. I don't know. But what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that, <laughs> there's hands going up. Uh, what I'm getting at is that God can work in these situations that seem hopeless, that seem helpless, and he can bring redemption and reconciliation out of them. He can do that. So Jacob ran away. He actually went to live with his, his uncle Laban, and he lived there with him for 20 years. And he picks up a couple wives, and he has some kids, which is an incredibly fast-forwarded version of the story. And eventually, eventually God said, Jacob, it's time for you to go home. It's time for you to go home. Um, and, but he knows that if he goes home, he's going to have to face his brother Esau. And even after 20 years, he's pretty scared about that. And so here's what happens in Genesis 32 
verse three. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I might feign favor in your sight. Now, Jacob's not bragging here. He's not bragging about all the stuff that he has. He's letting him know, listen, I, I have a lot of stuff. I have done well. God's blessed me. So maybe we can come to an agreement on something, right? Um, you know, I've done pretty well for myself. I'm ready to make reparations, if that makes sense, to try to, you know, strike a peace deal. And then in verse 6, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there's 400 men with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Jacob was concerned at the outset. Okay, but now he's freaked out. His brother's coming to meet him, and he's got 400 guys with him. This is not good news. But he makes plans, but his response is right. He actually prays. He goes to the Lord. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant, for with only my staff I crossed the Jordan. Now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother for the hand of Esau, for I fear him and that he may come and attack me and mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as as sorry, make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob prays to the Lord for deliverance, but also reminding God of his promise. Now, God hadn't forgotten his promise, but it's important for us to remind ourselves of the promises that God's given us, right? That's why we have those God's promises books in the back. If you don't have one, you can get one. It's good to remind ourselves God hasn't forgotten. And so he splits up his camp and he takes his herds and he starts giving them to his servants and saying, listen, go ahead of me to Esau. And what he's going to do is he's going to try to bribe him. He's going to try to buy him off with herds. It's worth a shot, right? I mean, he doesn't know. At this point, he thinks his brother might kill him. So he sends these herds. Here's a short list of what he sent. 220 goats, 220 sheep. 30 camels, 50 cows, and 30 donkeys. And he told him, he said, put a space between each herd. Send the first one, then wait a little bit, then send the second one. Because when you get there to my brother, it will be wave after wave of gift offerings to him. And maybe we can appease him. I think he was also saying to him, listen, brother, um, I don't need the birthright. Okay, I know I stole the birthright from you. God has blessed me. I don't need the birthright back. I think that might have been, now it doesn't say that, but that might be one of the things that he was thinking in sending all of these things to his brother. And so his family goes ahead, but he stays one more night. He stays one more night by himself, totally alone, and this would be the most significant night of his life. Because as he's there, alone with his thoughts, probably riddled with anxiety, a stranger shows up. Like some guy out of nowhere, appears to Jacob. 
And it tells us that he wrestled with this guy, with this stranger, all night until sunrise. He was wrestling with him. I'm going to pick it up in verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint, and he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Now, at some point in the struggle, it became apparent that this stranger was more than a man. It wasn't just a man. This is actually Jesus. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, what we call a Christophany. It happens a couple times. This is one of them. He's wrestling with God at this point. And when he figures that out, he grabs onto him, and he's not going to let go. He said, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. I stole, deceitfully, I stole a blessing the first time. This time, I know what I have. I know what's in front of me, and I'm not going to let go. I'm clinging to you until I get the blessing. But it's different than what we might expect. Because he gets his hip dislocated, right? Kind of strange. He gets his hip dislocated, and then he gets a name change. His identity changes right there. Earlier, I said that the price of healing is struggle and pain and hardship and anguish. And at the end of it, we become a different person. And you become a different person. You can either become better or you become bitter. You become better or you become bitter based on the struggle. Jacob could have become very bitter. You know, here I am. I'm worried about my brother. I think he might kill me. And now my hip is broken. So he could have become very bitter, but he became better because of his identity, which was now Israel. And Israel means governed by God. That's what Israel means, governed by God. You've tried to control your life, Jacob. You have wrestled with men. You've been deceitful, and you've stolen things. Now you have wrestled with God, and you've prevailed because you've surrendered. You've clung to what is right, to what is good, and now you're going to prevail because of that, and now you're going to be governed by God. And we can be governed by God in two ways, gang. We can, we can humble ourselves or we can be humbled. Those are your two options. You can humble yourself, or you can be humbled. Jacob needed some humility, and that's what he got. Um, And his encounter with the Lord left him with a limp, which was going to be a constant reminder of you need to be humble, kind of like Paul's thorn in the flesh. He said, I was given this thorn in the flesh to keep me humble. That's the reason why Jacob was given this limp. He thought, if he thought that he was going to have to fight his brother when he got there, he can forget about that now because his hip's broken. He, there's no way he can fight him now. All he can do is approach him humbly, and that's exactly what he does. As everyone is approaching Esau wave after wave, Jacob and Rachel are the very last to appear. And as they're approaching, it says that he bowed down to him seven times. He bowed down. Then he got back up and walked a little bit. Then he bowed down again seven times. Then Esau's like, all right, enough of this. And he runs to Jacob and falls on his neck, and they're weeping together because they have made peace. They have reconciled. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation, of taking people that are hurt and helping them make things right, to bring peace. And peace isn't just the absence of conflict. It's not. You can not have conflict and still not have peace. Uh, Peace is the presence of righteousness. It is things being made right. We can avoid conflict by running away. That's what Jacob did. He ran away, but he didn't have peace. True peace occurs when things are made right. Uh, First with God, Jacob, his name, his identity was changed to Israel, and then with man. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you, you need to do your part. So here are some practical ways in which we can be peacemakers, uh, both for ourselves and in leading others towards peace. Uh, First, we need a third party. Uh, We need a third party. Uh, Jacob sent messengers to his brother to announce that he was coming along, but also to kind of feel him out to see what his attitude was and what he might be able to do about it. If just the two offending parties get together and tensions are running high, then that's not going to go very well. That's not going to be peace. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose, and that's not going to be real peace. There's a a great movie that came out in 2015 called Bridge of Spies, if you haven't seen it. uh, Very good. True story about a Russian spy who was captured by the United States in 1957 during the Cold War. And it just so happened that an American pilot had gotten shot down and captured by the Russians. So they have one of ours, we have one of theirs. And not to ruin the story, but it's very complicated. And an American lawyer is sent over to negotiate kind of, you know, the trade of these two prisoners. To kind of negotiate peace, something that could have turned into a war. And interestingly enough, it takes place, the exchange takes place on a bridge between East and West Germany. That's where the exchange takes place. Um, A great movie. Wouldn't have happened, the story wouldn't have happened if somebody wasn't willing to stand in the gap. The two sides were engaged in a battle. There wasn't a conflict, right? It was the Cold War, but there wasn't peace between us. Now, because of our sin, you and I are engaged in a conflict with God. Some people may not acknowledge the conflict, but they certainly do not have peace. And because of that, as we saw last week, you and I cannot stand before God by ourselves. We will be completely wiped out because of our sin and because of his holiness. We have to have a mediator, which is the reason why God sent his son, Emmanuel, God with us. 
that we talk about at Christmas time. That's the reason why he came. So we can have peace through him and his cross, his sacrifice, spanned the gap. It was the bridge between us and the Father so that we can have peace. Second, we have to bathe the conflict in prayer. Unfortunately, the thing that should be our first response oftentimes ends up being a last resort. Uh, Jacob, when the messengers come back and tell him that his, his brother's coming with 400 men, he does freak out. He tries to make some plans, but then he does bathe the situation in prayer. He talks to God. Before the biggest conflict that Jesus would face, he separated himself from the group. He went to the garden and he prayed to the Father. He talked to God. Now, if Jesus, who was God in the flesh, needed to get away and bathe the situation in prayer, how much more do you and I, in our broken and in our fallen frames, need to bathe these situations in prayer? If you are facing a conflict or a lack of peace in your life, you need to bathe that situation in prayer if you want it to be reconciled, if you want it to be made right. Thirdly, bring a gift. Doesn't hurt to bring a gift. Jacob um, took his herds and he sent them as gifts to Esau in the hopes that it would appease his brother. Uh, Proverbs 18, 16 says that a man's gift opens doors for him and brings him before great men. One translation says before kings, if you bring a gift. Um, A person's sin, a couple hundred years later, a person's sin could only be forgiven if he brought a gift to the temple, if he brought a sacrifice to the altar as a substitute for themselves, substitution for reconciliation. Uh, Jesus says later, later on in this chapter, which we'll get into soon, that if you are offering your gift, that you're at the altar and you bringing your gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you have something against your brother, but if you remember that your brother has something against you, You need to stop. You need to leave your gift at the altar. Go and make reconciliation. Be made right. Have peace with your brother. And then come back and offer your gift. Making peace with man and making peace with God. God so loved the world that he gave. Right? He gave the ultimate gift when he gave his son. Bring a gift. We need to bring Jesus when we stand before God can't stand there alone. Fourthly, we need to be humble. Be humble or you'll stumble, that's for sure. After Jacob's encounter with Jesus, he was changed. Um, He had a new identity. There was an outward example, an outward um, expression of an inward change that had gone in inside of him. Um, James 4.10 tells us to humble ourselves before the Lord and he will exalt us. Let him be the one to exalt you. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God? That's what he's told us to do. Any thought of having a physical confrontation with his brother was out at this point. The nuclear option was off the table. And if we're going to have peace with other people in a conversation, we need to take that nuclear option off the table. So you might say, well, I'll try to be nice, but if they're not going to be nice, then I'm going to bring out the hammer, right? I'm prepared to defend myself if they're not going to reciprocate. We have to remain humble through the process if there's going to be peace, at least on our part. We have to do our part. Then lastly, we have to let our guard down. 
Uh, Jacob bowed down to the ground seven times on his way to meet Esau. Now, this naturally follows humility, uh, letting our guard down, but it's very hard to do. Because what if the other person doesn't let their guard down? And it's probably not going to go very well. Uh, You've probably seen in the movies where two people have their weapons pointed at each other. And they say, let's put our weapons down. And they both very slowly put their weapons down on the ground, very ready to pick them up if the other person doesn't follow through on their end. And that's our mindset. I'll let my guard down if they let their guard down. But if for any reason they're not, you know, they're not sorry, they're prideful, they're not forgiving, then my wall is going to go up immediately. Paul tells us, as much as it depends on you, you need to be at peace with all men. Not if other people live at peace with you, then you can be at peace with them. It's on you. Proverbs 19.11 says that good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And just to take it a step further, Jesus says, if somebody strikes you, then you need to turn them the other cheek. Not just offended you, but if somebody hits you, that doesn't make sense. And the people that were listening to him had to say, that doesn't make sense. Somebody hits you, and you're supposed to let them hit you again? But if that still doesn't work, see, if we are humble and if we can let our guard down, that can completely disarm the situation and it can help facilitate peace. But even if that doesn't happen, we're to continue in our part because we maintain our witness, maintain our witness. People will see that we're different if we maintain our humility. Our Savior was beaten more than any other man on the face of the earth. And it says that he opened up not his mouth. He didn't say anything. But what he did say to his disciples is, look, if they treat me like this, they're going to treat you like this. You can expect it. And that gets into, you know, persecution, which is what we get to talk about next week. As it pertains to Christians, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is writing to the church about this problem. They had engaged in suing one another in lawsuits. And he says this, he writes, this is out of the message translation, These court cases are a black eye on your community. Wouldn't it be far better to just take it, to let yourselves be wronged and just forget it? All you're doing is providing fuel for more wrong, more injustice, bringing more hurt to the people of your own spiritual family. Uh, There was a church that I attended, and um, they were part of a denomination. And the denomination was, you know, there was no relationship. There was no connection. And so uh, they were just kind of collecting a check every single month. And so we decided, you know what, we need to kind of step away from this situation because it's not good for us. There's no connection there. And when we talked to the denomination about it, they said, ain't going to happen. If you do it, we'll sue you. We'll take you to court. And we said, but 1 Corinthians 6 says we're not supposed to sue each other. They said, well, if you try to walk away, we're going to take you to court. And so we applied this and we said, you know what? Better for us to be wronged and forgive and move on, even though it's going to cost us financially. We're going to continue in humility and we're going to be wronged because that's the right thing to do. That is scriptural. Don't engage in lawsuits. Don't engage in fighting amongst believers. People are going to look at you and say, see, they're just like us. They're no different. There's nothing different on the inside of them. Most of the time, however, if we follow this example, it can lead to reconciliation. Jacob and Esau fell on each other's necks and wept. 
You and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation, bringing people together and bringing people to the Lord. Now, as a side note, because this is important too, Esau at that point said, come on, let's go back to my house and let's throw a party. Let's celebrate that we have been reconciled. But Jacob, still a bit wary of the situation, he says, listen, I've got little kids and, you know, my flocks have babies. So, you know, if I push them too hard, it could be bad for them. So why don't you go on ahead and I'll catch up. And so Esau's like, are you sure? He's like, yeah. Okay. So Esau goes back home. Jacob actually doesn't go to his brother's house. He goes to another region in that area and settles down there. It's kind of strange. They had just made peace. They had just reconciled. Why didn't he go to his brother's house and have that celebration? Jacob did everything on his part that he needed to do to facilitate peace, to repair the divide. But that doesn't mean that for us, that you have to stay in a compromising situation. If you're in a situation that is hurtful, that is destructive, that's going to make you compromise your relationship with the Lord, you don't have to stay there. You've made peace, but you don't have to be in a situation that's going to hinder your faith or your faith or your obedience to the Lord. That's wisdom. Just because you made up with somebody who hurt you doesn't mean that you have to give them the opportunity to do it again. The world tells us that the model man is macho, not meek. We make uh, heroes of warriors and powerful men. Uh, but Jesus told his disciples, hey, blessed are the meek and blessed are the peacemakers. Those are the ones that are going to be made happy. Uh, I heard a definition of meek this week that I thought was interesting. I called it strength submitted for a specific purpose, you know, strength under control. But the definition I heard this week was, it's a man who has a sword and knows how to use it, but he keeps it sheathed. He keeps his sword sheathed because he is trying to make peace. He's working towards reconciliation instead of destruction. Peacemaking isn't easy. Um, it doesn't come naturally to us, but like a scalpel, right, in the hands of a skilled physician, it has to cut first before there can be healing. Uh, there's going to be some pain, but the goal is restoration. Uh, Jesus says that the ones who do this are going to be happy. Blessed are those because they will be called sons of God. Um, all of God's children are to be peacemakers. Uh, this isn't a recommendation. It's not optional. We are all to be peacemakers, and we're to lead that. We're to lead that charge. Uh, it's become popular in our day to kind of look back at our heritage, look back at our history, try to figure out who we are, and take a lot of pride in what our, you know, what our ancestors were. But nothing can compare to the heritage of our spiritual family, of who we are in Jesus. Uh, I'm going to close with this story. There was a story, a uh, true story, of a guy, he is known as St. Telemachus. And the story of St. Telemachus, he was a monk who lived, you know, in seclusion in a monastery. And God had told him, I want you to go to Rome. And he kept hearing this over and over again, I want you to go to Rome. He's like, I don't understand that. I live in seclusion. I'm a monk. You want me to go to Rome? So he goes to Rome during a festival, and people are flooding through the streets. They're running to the Colosseum. And this is about 400, around the year 400 AD. And they said, well, we're going to the Colosseum. The gladiators are fighting. This is, you know, one of the pinnacles of the festival. 
And he's like, man, hundreds of years later, and these people are still killing each other in the Colosseum. And so he runs into the Colosseum. He said, I have to stop this. All these years later, um, the, the emperor at that point was actually a Christian emperor. He had kind of made, you know, Christianity the uh, religion of the empire. And he runs in there, goes in front of the, you know, the gladiators, and he says, in the name of Christ, stop. And he's yelling at them. He's trying to get in between them. And the crowd gets so incensed that he's trying to make peace, that he's trying to bring peace to the situation. The crowd stones him to death because he is trying to impair this battle that's going on. And so he dies trying to make peace. You know, in our world today, people want conflict. Peace does not come naturally. And we need to be those that regardless of what it might do to our reputation, uh, what it might do to our feelings, how difficult it is, probably not going to cost us our life, but those that go in and try to make peace with others. Uh, we need to be those that um, have a third party. We need to be those that bring Jesus to the situation. We can't do it on our own. It has to be the Lord. We need to be those that um, bathe the conflict in prayer. Every conflict that we go in, we need to bathe it in prayer. Uh, if there's not prayer beforehand, gang, then we're just relying on our own strength. And if we're relying on our own strength, it might not go well. Might say things that we don't mean, might come with a wrong attitude. We need to hear from the Lord. And uh, thirdly, we need to bring a gift. What we bring with us, um, as I mentioned, is the mediator. He is the gift, the gift that was given for us, the gift that was placed on the altar as a sacrifice for us. We need to be humble or we'll stumble. We've got to be humble. Remember that. And we can only be humble if Jesus is the center, if he's the reason why we're pursuing uh, peace. And we have to let our guard down. Um, ultimately, God is the one that repays says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We're not supposed to worry about that. We are to be those that seek peace, that let our guard down, that walk in humility, um, and make Jesus the center of everything we do. If we make glorifying him the center, then we're going to seek peace. We will be known as sons of God because we're those that want to bring peace to earth.